1: You're listening to The Iron Show with Johnny McMahon. We're proud to have The Iron Show right here on Fringe Radio Network. That's FringeRadioNetwork.com. The Iron! Mm -hmm. So am I inside, Mom Mm -hmm. Carnival has left town Years ago Years ago ago. Oh, that's so sad, Counselor Mark It breaks my heart I think I might
0: cry
1: but <sighs> I won't because I'm feeling so warm and fuzzy because I'm here with Counselor Mark and today we will talk about grief and please. sadness sadness, sadness. All right? Counselor Mark, okay. Mark, okay. Mark. Yeah. Counselor Mark yeah. Counselor Mark, yeah. Counselor Mark yeah. Counselor Counts to the box. Counts the box. Counts to the box. Yes, yes, yes. To help you. Oh, yeah, baby. Oh, yeah. 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 And, yeah. and uh. Yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. Oh, man. That got me. I, I felt that. That was deep. So deep inside. Oh, buddy. Now, uh. You know, Counselor Mark, he hit me uh, when I asked him to do this uh, grief, uh, grief and sadness session. He, uh, he hit me and said, uh, why don't you come up with a couple questions, and then that'll get us going and everything. And, uh, and so, uh, and so I, I told him, you know, like, Johnny here, I got out of the hospital a few weeks ago. I was in there for a week. I almost died. Went into surgery. Well, they, they cut out big chunks of my leg and my belly. And I kind of look like I've I've got big, huge, open wounds that are draining into my bandages right now as I'm sitting here. And I kind of look like I got in a sword fight with Conan and lost. So, uh, your boy Johnny, he's in bandages. And not only that, but some really tragic things happened in my life uh, at the same time. So I'm sitting here shell-shocked. And I told Mark, you know, like, questions... Johnny, Johnny's blank. I got nothing. I told Mark, I'm blank. I got nothing. So we turned to the World of Prophecy. That's worldofprophecy.com. And we asked friends, Mark's friends. Mark's a member. I'm a member. We've been there for like years now. So we asked Caretaker and Daisy and all the guys there. Wait, 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 wait,
2: the Blues Brothers
1: when all those guys are coming down the building hup, 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 so anyway uh <laughs> <that's crazy. laughs> oh don't get me started on the Blues Brothers we'll, be, we'll just be right off the rails here let's get it back let's get it back let's bring it back so right. uh, I have one question for Counselor Mark and uh, oh Counselor Mark I do have one question for you, can I ask it?
2: Go right ahead. Oh yeah!
1: All right. <laughs> <laughs> ah, welcome to the Iron Church. Boy Johnny. Yeah, yeah. It's Boy Johnny, and I'm down here, down here with Counselor Mark Breton. Counselor Mark, and we are going to deal today with a uh, very fun subject, I must say. And that's uh, grief and sadness. Oh, Counselor Mark, I was not looking forward to doing this show, but now that I'm here, I am so happy to be here. And me and Mark are so happy to be in your ear. Up uh, in uh, it. Now I must take a sip of Red Bull.
2: <laughs> I'm going to some of my tea here Get fired up
1: <laughs> Well, I drank, I had my pinky out And then I thought, oh, I need a $4.19 giant can of Red Bull Oh, oh yeah, yeah, man. yeah. Oh, man, that just hit my soul You know, Counselor Mark,
2: you know. Echo, 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 echo.
1: Oh, that's like the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) I'm telling you what now, Counselor Mark, he's eminently qualified, eminently qualified to help you with your emotional problems. He's going to be here counseling you in your ear, and you're going to get a whole lot of good advice. And I think that if you listen deep, this is going to heal you. Jesus is going to come in here, I I pray it. Please, Jesus, come in here. Please, Holy Spirit, come in here to this session and speak through Counselor Mark and and, and make this show a healing source. So um, listen deep. Like I say on the Iron Show, kick back and listen deep. So, uh... But uh, I'd like to uh, I'd like to talk now. Counselor Mark, who is Counselor Mark? See, this is the big question. Who is he? he you're listening to the show, and you're like, "Who is Counselor Mark? You know, where did he come from? Why is he qualified to counsel me?" So I thought about let's have Counselor Mark tell his story real quick, you know. And uh, then I thought, wait a minute, Johnny is into listening to people, and. Because of that, I want to tell council Mark's story because I listen to him. All right
0: All right
1: now council Mark is gonna jump in here and correct me probably from time to time because uh, Johnny's rules Johnny's rules for doing an iron show is he has nothing in front of him but watching his sound levels, watching the EQ, Staring at the wall I never have notes I just stare at the wall and I go off my memory So that's why the Iron Show is a little different You will hear me reading today Just because our friends at the World of Prophecy Have come out with some good questions Uh, Drew, caretaker Daisy, I'm not going to say her real name Because she didn't give me permission And uh, wait quickly has come up with some really good questions, so you will hear Johnny actually reading some. But for now, I'm staring at the wall and I'm. <laughs> uh, ah. Uh, see, see, Jane, run the stick.
2: Isn't you see
1: Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Like, you remember 20. that when they're sitting there in the bed and you spend all that money and he's trying to the paper? It's like, duh. <laughs> <"Tuh>, uh, <laughs> that's the. Oh.
1: <laughs> Your boy, Johnny, a lot of people don't know that I'm a really wild man. I like wild sports and I'm a snowboarder. I li- I'm a steam freak. I get up on that mountain. Uh, we in Oregon, we have the only live active volcano that you can actually ski on. And uh, yeah, people come from all over the world so they can say they ski on a, uh, or snowboard, which I do, on an actually active volcano mountain. And uh, Johnny is, and I like Mount, we have Mount Bachelor here. That's another one we have. It's a monster
0: mountain.
1: 9,000 feet, hood's 11,000 feet. And I like, Johnny is addicted to the steeps. I like, I like it when it looks like you're going down a giant wall. Uh, almost vertical, oh, and uh, so it's terrifying. Um, you it know, Now let's let's just talk about fear for a second. Um, me and my snowboarding partner, who is a Vietnamese gangster, he's one of my best friends, Do Duke. Uh, you know, I, we call him Duck or Duke. And me and Duke, we were determined because he's a steep freak too. And me and Duke were determined to drop off the very tippy top of Mount Bachelor. And there's a chairlift that takes you up. Then you have to hike up about 300 yards. Takes you about an hour. And then you're on the very, very summit. And you want to talk about Steep Freak. Me and Dew looked at each other. And we were both crying. We were so scared. And uh, we were hitting each other. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You know, slapping each other and hitting each other. And finally we dropped in. And I'm going to tell you what. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. That was some steep stuff. I wish I would have talked about it in the fear series. Because that was... I was what so scared. About it now? I was so scared I was crying. And I did it with my best friend. One of my best friends. Me and Duke and uh, my other best friend, Eniatola, he's Iranian. But uh, I don't have any white friends, really, except for
2: Mark here. And, uh... <laughs> I'm, I'm white...
1: But who is Counselor Mark? Why is he qualified to counsel you? Uh, let me tell you his history, because I've, I've listened deep to Counselor Mark over the years that I've known him, and uh, I want to tell you his story. He'll jump in and correct me if I mess up, but I'm just going to stare at the wall and pull it right out of memory, so I'm probably going to stumble. Here I go! All right! Counselor Mark, <laughs> <laughs> Counselor Mark grew up real poor, and he uh, came to the Lord when he was nine years old. He was saved, and, uh, but uh, he grew up in a very, very poor and abusive house. Um, he, he was raised by a single mother who, uh, who was uh, mentally ill and a little bit psychopathic. She was meaner than a rattlesnake, one of the meanest women on the earth. and she beat counsellor Mark when he was a little boy every day. And I want to say twice on Sunday, but she straightened out on Sunday, and she tried to behave. Then she went back to beating him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So uh, Counselor Mark was severely beaten. He lived in terror. He lived in horror as a child. He had one of the worst childhoods you could possibly imagine. Then when he got to into his teens, he started playing music. And uh, he formed a couple bands. He played in roller skating rinks. He played at a few parties. He did a lot of recording, uh, you know, songwriting, songwriter. He's a very fine musician. He's a great singer. As you've, you've heard him do with the intros with me, he just rocks. And he nails those high notes. Now, Counselor Mark, aside from all his wonderful counseling, I really believe that his high notes are the most important, you know? I'm all about show. Oh, yeah. You know? Anyway, so Counselor Mark... After he was in bands and stuff, he joined the Air Force. Counselor Mark is uh, Council Mark is, was a military man, and I want to thank you for your service. I really mean that. And to any troops out there, uh, Counselor Mark, thank you for your service to the, to our country. And, You're uh, all very welcome. So Counselor Mark joins the Air Force, and uh, he uh, he he actually had quite a career there. He became a staff sergeant. He was really somebody. He was in charge of a crew of mechanics that uh, fixed uh, helicopters. He had a lot of responsibilities. He was really, he was really somebody in the military. And, uh, and not only that, but he spent time you know in the combat zone and everything. So uh, I got a lot of respect for Council Mark for all of that. Uh, towards the end of that, he was diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder, which Johnny also has. I'm, I've been diagnosed that way. And, uh, he left the military and, uh, because bipolar disorder just doesn't really work, you know, when it gets bad on you, it's hard to be in the military with that. So then he sought help. He went through a lot of crisis periods, uh, you know, and, uh, he, he was dealing with his bipolar disorder and it got so bad one time it landed in the hospital and, uh, um, it was there in the hospital where, uh. Where he, he sat there and and he asked Jesus to uh to 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 save him and forgive him and let him serve him, and from there on he uh, he went to college. He got he has two degrees: one in divinity, and the other one is in what? Counselor Mark.
2: Pastoral counseling. Pastoral counseling. I've got a master of arts in religion and pastoral counseling, and I'm almost done with my master's of divinity in a discipleship ministries. Uh, something to note uh, when I went in the hospital the first time, I was still in the Air Force and uh, actually had a really, really lame suicide attempt. I was so screwed up in the head. So, uh, and that's when, you know, like I said, I'd been a Christian since I was nine, but uh, I basically decided to try to, my hardest right then and there to lay my idols down in front of the Lord and say, burn them up. I can't live this way. And and he did.
1: Wow! So you know the the, the now l- listen to me now about Counselor Mark. The fact, the fact that he has a degree in counseling, he has a degree in divinity. He knows the Bible forwards and backwards. He is eminently qualified as a Christian to speak to you. Not only that, but the real the real thing that makes Counselor Mark. One of the best counselors in the world, in my opinion, is that he has experience. He knows what it's like to be severely abused. He knows what it's like to struggle with bipolar disorder. He's been to the bottom himself. He knows how you feel because he's been there. He can answer your questions because he's been there. And that's what makes Counselor Mark worthy of being in your ear. And uh, I, I just, it's such a blessing to know Counselor Mark. I've known him for a couple, three years. And uh, he's just become one of my best friends. And I just love him. And uh, it's such an honor to be here. And today we're going to talk about grief and sadness in the continuation of our Human Emotions series. And uh, so <clears throat> I just, I just, I, I only have really one thing so far. To uh, bring to the table, and uh, let me uh, let me play you a little clip to start it out. I have that one memorized. That's like my favorite, you know, part in all the old monster movies. It's alive! Uh, it's alive! Oh, in the name of God!
2: <laughs> that is so funny.
1: Okay, now there was a uh, there was uh, one of the best Frankenstein movies, you know, versions of Frankenstein that I have ever seen. Came out in like the mid '90s, and uh, it seemed it it just captured that feeling. And now, you know, I'm not super emotional, but when I watched this one part of this Frankenstein movie in the, in the mid 90s, I just sat there and cried. Tears are coming out of my eyes, and I was, like, I was like, oh man. And this is what happened. They, uh, it was towards the end of the movie, and, you know, the, the monster was being chased and hunted, and, and Dr. Frankenstein runs into the monster in the woods. Because he's looking for him, too. And uh, and uh, <clears throat> the monster says to Dr. Frankenstein, You made me. Men hate me. They hunt me with guns. They hunt me with dogs. Why did you make me? And I felt so sorry for him because... That's the way I have felt from time to time when I'm talking to God, especially because I have bipolar disorder. And what that means is I'm usually, as one as uh, one minute I feel like Superman, I'm outgoing, I'm bouncing off the walls, and the next minute I'm in the corner crying, wishing I was never born. And uh, that's that's a <clears throat> bipolar people have this uh, can have this uh, thought that is very common in bipolar disorder on the downside when you're in the when you're in the manic depressive state you really believe that being born you being born was a mistake and that you should have never been born and so when i saw when i saw uh, frankenstein's monster say why did you make me that's something that i have asked god many times Why did you make me? You know, because when you're really sad and you're really grieving, a lot of times, at least I will, I will turn to God and say, Why did you make me? It's kind of like Job. Job never cursed God, but he cursed the day he was born. Uh, Can you address that, you know, a little bit, Counselor Mark? Whew. Um, See, well, I'm hitting I, Counselor Mark I know what you mean. I'm hitting Counselor Mark on the fly. I wanted to hit him for something. I wanted to hit him with something that he's not prepared for. So let's let him spin with it.
2: All right. Uh well first of all, I can I can identify with it differently, but but I can identify with it because when I was growing up I recently was thinking about bipolar disorder and when did I first I'm trying to write a biography and uh, And I was thinking about how far back was I experiencing the symptoms. And I remember as a child feeling very, very strange. um, And strange from other people, strange. And uh, just cut off. And and when you grow up and you feel like you're kind of a freak, uh, it has a real profound effect on the way you socialize. And so I think for me it was kind of like, Less often, why did you make me? And more so, why did you make me this way? You know, what was the purpose? I and and so it was really tough growing up, feeling like that. And and um, and the conclusion I had to come to, I probably didn't really clarify in my mind. An answer to that question, and that's definitely something I want everybody to understand as we per, you know proceed through this, is that when we give the best answers we can to each other. Like World of Prophecy out on the thread, it's been phenomenal watching people interact, and and uh, I'm so privileged to just be a part of that group because here's a group of people that really love each other from great distances. You know, they don't know each other except online generally, and and it's just a situation where. They just care, and uh, but uh, you know we have to understand that God made us for Himself, and that's a tough thing because, like I've said before, in other other uh, episodes of the show, we don't get to wrap our arms around God. We don't get to you know grab His leg. We don't have this kind of experience—the tangible, uh, tactile. Thing that we do with other people where we receive love and we find uh, meaning and purpose, you know, uh, and legitimacy. And so, with God, when you feel that estrangement, like I did, like Johnny was talking about, it's easy to look at Him and say that. But one of the things that's, that you're doing when you're saying that to Him is you're giving Him credit for creating you. Yeah. And uh, as opposed to what a lot of people do and they're like, I don't like this existence. So there can't be a God. You know, this doesn't make sense to me rationally or whatever. And so God, God can't be real because bad things happen. And and so it's better that we cry out to God and, you know, be like, you know, why this? Why this thing? Why this now? and And deal with that. You know, and, it, and the the thought that comes to mind is like grab the horns of the altar and hang on because, you know, if they pull you away, you've had it. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and so when I think about times when I've kind of asked God that question similarly, what I wasn't, I wasn't really asking him, you know, why I was asking him, what are you going to do about it? Oh yeah. Good one. Yeah, me too. Me too. When I think about yeah. the feeling, I was like, all right, I feel this way and in my head, I'm thinking like, this sucks. Why does it have to be this way? And what I really f- figured out was that I was really asking, oh, all right, big guy, you know, what are you going to do about it? You're responsible for this. What are you going to do about it?" And I think it changed my point of view a lot when I looked at that. And 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 the thing that brought into clarity for me was having children, because. Oh, Here yeah. my wife and I, you know, we come together and we create this child. And my son was miserable for the first seven months of his life. Uh, he just – he had uh, – can't think of the word. But anyways, it's when your digestive tract is just really irritated and uh, colic. He was real colicky and he had a lot of problems with digestion and stuff. and And he just – oh my gosh, he could cry so loud and so miserable. And I would just take him and – put him in a baby seat and we'd put him in the bathroom. We had this tiny little apartment in Hawaii when I was stationed there in the military and we'd put him in that seat and we would either set it on top of the dryer or we'd put it in the bathroom and turn the fan on. You know, so there was some noise and we would just sit in the living room and kind of shiver, you know, from the, just our nerves being utterly overwhelmed, you know? And so you've got this child and God's looking at this kind of thing and thank God he's not me as a parent, you know? And, uh, he wants to he wants to explain it but he can't because existence doesn't make any sense anyways i mean when you th- really think about it right. well, this is a struggle for me existence doesn't make any sense anyhow in a way consciousness and in, in what we inhabit here in this body and so we're asking him a really big question you know and the only thing you can come to on it is that I was created for a purpose by a creator with intent. And if the creator has intent, I need to understand what it is. He needs to tell me something so that I have a good reason to keep moving forward. Yeah. And moving forward in belief. Right. And so, you know, you look at the gospel and you look at what Jesus came and did, the example he lived, and and, and we're called to that, then you're like, okay— uh, this is this will be kind of funny. I actually thought of a way to make this interview really short about grief, and it was just going to say, "Well, suck it up." But
0: yeah, <laughs> you know, well, you're a military, well, you're a military bad, man. Whatever, suck it up, you dude. Know. You're a
2: military and, uh, man.
1: You've been into battle. You know, that's uh, that's one of the big philosophies of the military, when, especially when you're in combat.
2: Well, because I was in the Air Force, I have to clarify now I was not in combat, okay? You were in the uh, zone
1: though. You were there. I was
2: I was in South Korea. Yeah. So it well, was the big high tension thing, it's but it's a
1: demilitarized zone.
2: Yeah. That's combat. Oh, yeah, I was, I, it, it, we we drilled like it was for real. It was but it wasn't like I was in Iraq getting shot at, you know, out there. On the but
1: no, but it wasn't safe by any means. No, I?
2: it was not safe like being in this chair I'm sitting in right now. No, it no. was not. No. And, uh, I mean, I walked out to the front gate one time at the base where there was thousands of people burning flags. Whoa. You know, burning U.S. flags. In South Korea now. This was in South Korea. And they wanted us gone. And, and so, I mean, there was a lot of not safe all over the place. Oh, yeah. And um, – but back to the, the child thing. You know We had Daniel. And we wanted Daniel. And I've got tons of pictures of him. And he just turned 23. He's in college. And – He's amazing, but his life has not been perfect. I have not been a perfect parent, but when we had him, you know, we had intent for him. We were like, okay, we want him to have a good life, but I know that there are going to be times when he really struggles. There are going to be things that he goes through that he has to go through. He cannot become the man that he's supposed to be if he does not go through these struggles. And I, as a father, have to stand back and let him go through those struggles. Now I have two other daughters, same thing, different struggles. But I I can identify with Daniel more so because I know how guys think because I'm a guy. And and as a father, then I look at that and I'm like, okay, this is really going to hurt. And there have been so many evenings in my life where I cried. I just I, I would hear about the day and I would hear about the trouble of the day or I would hear whatever was going on and Daniel's been an exceptional son. I mean he is genuinely a good, conscientious kid. And uh but my heart just broke for him. I, it recently and this is the I I'm don't want to get off topic or make it seem like off topic, but he needed to get new tires for his car. We went out in his car, uh he had a flat tire, so I looked at all the tires real well, and they were worn. And I, and I bought said, well, some dude, tires.
1: Huh? Your boy, boy Johnny's the dad. I've bought tires.
2: Yeah, well, see, I knew I wasn't going to be paying for these. I knew that he had to pay for them. It Uh-oh. was just the and and uh, and, uh, and and so I was like, well, you know, I, I went out and I changed the spare and. and Spare on everything. But I told him, I said, you know what, dude? You're just, let me get on the phone. I'll find you the best deal I can. But you're going to have to pay for these tires. And it was like 300 and something. And I felt horrible for him. I was just like, this sucks. You know, it's his money and it's his life. And I wish he didn't have to waste it on things like tires. And he looked at me. He's like, Dad, this is bothering you more than it bothers me. I just figure I need tires. It's a car. It's got to have tires. And I was just like, yeah, but it just kills me that you got to put out all this money for this. You know, when... I would when I would want to do it you know when I if I can afford it and um but the thing is is that it's his car he's 23 and he needs to pay for his tires and I have to let him do that he has to learn how to do it because he's going to have a son someday there's a good possibility he will have children and if I have not taught him how to be that kind of man He will not be able to teach his children to be that kind of man. He will not be that kind of man towards them. And I look at God and God is my father. And he puts me into situations, allows me to move into situations where he's going to refine me and he's going to refine me so that I can sit behind this microphone and talk about this stuff with you as a brother and, and not, be a hypocrite not be inexperienced not be making stuff up not be reading out of a book but know what i'm saying and and i i don't know everything the, the one thing i learned when i went to uh get my graduate degrees was that i had a whole lot more to know you know you they're almost like well okay now here's your very itty bitty little introduction introduction to learning sorry and uh But that's one thing I definitely know about suffering and grief and loss. You know, I'm watching what I consider to be the loss of his childhood. You know, when dad does everything and and it's all great and then, you know, we'll go out and buy a Power Rangers toy or something like that. He has to grow up. And part of growing up and being able then to be a part of the working body of Christ in our community is for him to be able to see people going through those struggles and go, you know, I've struggled too. And I can be a comfort to you. And so that's what we're doing. And uh, grief is a huge uh, opening for that. And so we have to be able to look at God and go, okay, yeah, I don't get this at all. And say, but you've got something that you're doing. And I'm just going to trust. I'm just right now, I'm just going to choose to trust it. Am I thrilled to death? No. Is my mind made up? No. But it says in Scripture, he will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is set on him. And so when we set our mind by choice on God, then he brings the peace. And so then we get to walk out in that peace and our life changes. And then what we get to do then is is take that peace to fellow believers and, and hand it to them and say, here is what. You can do in this moment when it's awful. And like you, you know, get in those moments saying, God, why? You know, why am I here? Why did you make me? And I really believe that the question is more so, all right, you've done this thing. I'm here. What are you going to do about it? And so then then we're talking to God, asking him for what we're supposed to do and what he's going to do. And I think it's the beginning of a conversation that lasts a lifetime and is very dynamic. Does that uh, make any sense? Yeah,
1: it does make a lot of sense. Uh, I I wanted to add something here that is just right there with Counselor Mark right out of the Bible. And, uh, you know, Paul said, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now. I know in part, but then I shall know, even as I am known. And what he's saying there is that We don't have the answers here. We're, why did you make me? Why is it this way? Why, 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 why? We don't have the answers, but it's so important for you to know that someday you will know. You will have the answers.
2: Absolutely.
1: So, you know, think about that. Just when you ask those questions, just remember that you will have the answers. Someday you will. And that's a huge comfort to me. I mean, it's, it's like almost stopped me from asking those questions, you know, because, you know, I'm not – you have to accept the fact there's some things you're not going to know. Yeah. Now, yeah. We're, we're talking about sadness and grief, and uh, I have another question for Counselor Mark, a little story here uh, that just popped into my head while I was staring at the wall. There is a huge heartbreak of my life. That I'd like to share with Counselor Mark and uh, my daughter was uh, Mirren. She was the apple of my eye. She was the cutest kid in the world. And every day when she was a little kid, she'd stand by the window waiting for me. And I would always buy her some little thing, you know, on the way home. And she'd come out, Daddy, Daddy, what did you bring me? And uh, sometimes I'd be in the garage working on projects, and she's, she'd always come in and say, Dad, let's watch TV together. I want to be with my daddy and watch TV. and Or let's build a fire. And I'd come in and go, you know uh, my wife, she, she is a librarian and she loves to read. That's just, she's just, she's read thousands of books. So she was usually off, you know, in her, uh, sewing room reading a book. So Mirren and me, she was like my company a lot of the times. And, uh, we were so close. And, uh, <clears throat> but now when we got now, as she got into her teenage years, her personality changed and, uh, there are some. Have you ever met Mark? Have you ever met somebody that you just didn't like, and it's not their fault; you just didn't like their personality, you know?
2: Yeah, I've I've met people that I didn't just jive with.
1: Yeah, and uh, that's the problem. As Marin changed in, in her teenage years and beyond, she changed more and more into a personality that just didn't like me. It's not. It's nothing, you know, that I did. Or anything. I was a good dad. I never spanked her. I yelled at her a few times when she messed up. But I was a kind father. I was responsible. I always, I always gave her as much stuff as I could. You know, I mean, uh, and uh, she had a good childhood. And, but her personality changed and we went two different directions in personality. And now she doesn't want to be around me. She, she doesn't like me at all. And it's not my fault, and it's not her fault, but we are two different people that somehow she doesn't – I love her. I'd love to hang with her, but she just – she doesn't like me. That's all there is to it. It's just so simple. But it's the heartbreak of my life, and I don't know if it will ever change. But um,
2: have you got I, I think the possibility do? of changes there simply because you're aware of it and, and you want the relationship. I think that's like a a, a great. Uh, by great, I mean usable uh, thing to share. Uh, did I cut you off, or were you going to say some more?
1: No, no. I was just wanted you to, you know, kind of, you know, go, you know, go tell, with that. Yeah, go with that. You know, counsel me.
2: Um, well, one of the things you talked about was. Uh, how she grew up and, and the personality changed and it happened in her teen years. And, and what happens with teenagers so often is uh, their perceptions of things uh, diverge quite a bit from ours. And if we can't find a way to allow those divergent perceptions to coexist in a way, as long as they're, you know, approaching biblical uh then you get that kind of you know ostracization, if that's a word, um, and so that's what happened. You guys grew apart, and what she did is she took uh the idea of of preference and turned it into uh something mandatory. It was like she was like, "I don't like this personality, I can't be around it." and at the same time, you're thinking, "I don't like what I've seen change, and I can't relate to it."
1: Oh, and no. No, so, no, no. It didn't work that way. It's a one-way thing. It's only a one-way thing. I uh-huh. love her. She hates me.
2: Well, one of the things you did talk about, which I think is relevant for our topic, is is the idea that um, her perceptions had to have changed of you as she got older. Now, were they accurate? Probably not, because we never know our full stories, even to ourselves lots of times. But there was somewhere there was a break, and she just decided that she couldn't She couldn't do it. She couldn't relate. And I believe that it's a lot like that with God in us, you know, that we get to a point where we don't understand God and personally don't like the way he does business. And so we walk away from him. We're like, I don't like this. This isn't how I want things to be. Whatever this hurts, you don't understand. Uh you There's something that you don't get, you're not a good person like you think you are. whatever it is, something happens and people step away from it and children do that with their parents because it's 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 a very very difficult dynamic to get through uh children oftentimes teenagers do not comprehend how hypocritical they are when they're looking just right at the hypocrisy of other people and they're they're screaming about it.
1: Oh, yeah, like Jesus said, take the beam out of your eye before you try to take the sliver out of your brother's eye.
2: Yeah, and it's a lot like that, and I've noticed it really does start in our society in junior high. and, And kids, they see the hypocrisy. What happens is they see that their parents are human beings, and there's these problems with them, and... They can't stand it. And then every time you start living your life and they're around it, they're thinking, gosh, this guy's just a liar. And I'm not talking specifically about you, but all the different teenagers I've I've worked with and uh, lots of them. It's like that. It's like my parents are full of crap. And I don't understand why they talk about God and they talk about Jesus and they talk about this and that. When I look at their lives and they do this and they do that and they do this and they do that, you know, and the kid is sitting in front of me. Because his parents need help because the, the dude is sneaking around doing drugs and watching porn on the internet. So I've got this person in front of me who's doing this stuff, who all he can do is rail against his parents for being hypocrites. Uh, yeah. And, uh, what? Yeah. And so there's just massive loss of perspective. And it's biological and it is spiritual and it's emotional and uh, – And unless you can get them to transition through that stage of their uh, growth and understand that their parents are doing the best that they can and that there's – it's something I kind of do with my kids is I let them know as early as I could, as soon as I could get them to understand that I was just a person. That dad was not a miracle worker. That I was—I was, I was going to be the best I could for them. You know, and kids heroize their fathers and, and, and their mothers, and uh, I think sometimes dads more so. And uh, I did, just as early as I could, I got my son to understand I was just a man who had a child who still had tremendous struggles. There, the, there was many, many difficult things to go through, and what I did is. As I took away that hypocrisy thing from him, he didn 't get to have it because I already admitted my sin. I was like, "This daddy sins Daddy gets upset, and he 's not supposed to and and I took that away from him so by the time he got to junior high school, he already knew I was full crap. <laughs> I mean, he already saw this guy who was was broken, and it there was no pretentiousness, there was no uh lie now he, he still had problems, and there was always the perception issues. But the perception thing is that the key of it is, you know, how does this person perceive the other? How does the daughter perceive the father? How does – how do we as believers, as children of God, perceive God?
1: Okay, stop. Would it be – would it have been uh, – Would would, it, would I have been able to change this if at the time of that change, as she was a teenager, I made sure – I talked to her and made sure – that, look, your dad, he is just another critter in this world. I'm not perfect. You know, I'm just struggling to survive. You know, this is my history. This is where I came from. This is where I am now. I'm just another person in the world trying to get, you know, trying to get by. I'm not perfect. I'm faulted. Is that something that will change the course of something like what happened to me or not?
2: I think so, I think so uh, because it's like when I and I know this from doing counseling with junior high and, and early high school kids is that they lose respect for their parents. That's the big thing that happens is the loss of respect. And as soon as that occurs, then there's all this building back that you have to do—not of respect, but of regard. You know, you have to get the the kid to see that you're on equal footing as far as life goes really you know I mean I might be responsible for this kid and I need to make sure that they're brought up and and everything you know taught manners and taught how to live and how to use a checkbook and whatever else but one of the things I told my my kids early on was look God gave you to me you belong to God I'm your dad and you and I are brothers and sisters in Christ. So my main responsibility is to oversee your life as a father but to bring you up as a brother or sister in the Lord. And uh, by doing it differently that way, I invited them into my life and into the conversation of how their lives were going to go different than a lot of parents do. A lot of parents are very interested in maintaining a certain level of control and authority. And what I did was is I tried as early as I could to let them know that God was their final authority and that when they sin, they sin against him. They didn't sin against me. And so uh, they were responsible to him and I could help them have a relationship with God then to to keep that accountability and forgiveness and grace and mercy going. And so that was the challenge then was to be dad because dad is the, the, the father. You know, husband is uh, – an a, an old word that has to do about, you know, with someone that husbands things, that handles resources correctly. And it's that same kind of idea. We get this resource, this child, you know, my son, and he's going to go out into the world as a Christian and represent Christ in whatever area of life he goes into in the career that he does, in his marriage, when if he gets married, and all these different things. My other kids are the same way. You know, they're going to go out into the world. And so they need to be dealing with God as directly as possible, as early as possible. And I think that could have worked. But I, I I can't really say because I don't know your daughter and I don't know what really happened. I don't – I just know what worked and what I've seen not work. and And so I have seen parents trying to push their kids – with their authority because their parents uh, lose their children because the whole time that they're trying to push their kids uh, using the power of their authority, their children are sitting back thinking that they have no right to this authority because they're not respectable, because they uh, are hypocritical. And and that's just such a huge maturity gap on, on both sides. Um, and so – you know that's where a big difficulty comes in unfortunately what happens is is we model that and that models for them god you know and then they have a lot of repair work to do when they finally get to god and the reason why this relates to grief then as we were talking about grief and loss sadness is that we have this broken relationship and it's just out there and it's lingering and you've got a daughter who is more than at arm's length away from you and this is this is happening all over the place with so many different parents, so i'm going to generalize it. A parent has a child who has grown up and has decided to just step away from them and they're they're separated and they're hurt, and there's a distance, and the distance is there by choice and like you talked about or I talked about earlier, you know looking at your situation, there's a perception somewhere she has a perception somewhere that makes you not worthy, that she just looks at you and says, you're not worthy of my love, time, affection, whatever. And she is probably has a sense of loss about something. And so because she has that sense of loss, some kind of hurt, whatever grudge it is that she has to bear, she's holding that against you. And we in turn do that. It's it's a little micro version of the macro world where we hold all this stuff against God. Like, why did you make me? Why is this the way the world works? Why do we have all these difficult things? And it hurts. All this stuff hurts, and I don't like it, and I don't want to be around it. And rather than deal with their hurts and come to understand the, understand the nature of the relationship that they're in, see, because you and your daughter still have a relationship.
1: Uh, no, she we don't. do think
2: you don't, but you do.
1: Uh, what would you recommend that I do?
2: To uh, fix it. Well, now, I think I mean, uh, now, now, um, Well, you've got to find out what it is that gave her the perception that you're not worthy. And you have to find out the truth of it.
1: What? What? No, it's not that, though. It's just that she doesn't like me.
2: But you know? she doesn't like you for a reason. Uh, There's not just some arbitrary. Oh, I don't like him. Yeah, it is because – even people who are – I have met some really – I'm going to put it as kindly as I can. I have met a lot of people who do not choose to embrace intelligence, Okay, They don't choose to embrace rationale in their thinking, but they do have some kind of logic they're adhering to. Right. Somewhere in the logic of her mind and heart, there's a reason why she doesn't want to be with you. Now – you guys might not get along, you guys might not relate well, even if she decides, you know, I'm gonna let him back into my life and we're gonna talk. You know, we're gonna we're not gonna be ostracized, we're just gonna be cumbersome. And so you've gotta figure out what that thing is, because she can't. There's something that happened that you are unaware of and she will not share. She has chosen rather than to deal with it, whether to deal with or whatever it is, she has just decided to just marginalize you and and just keep it marginalized because she doesn't want to deal with it. And I have found that reminds me a lot when I've done marriage counseling and done the studies that I've done on marriage. And that is, is if you, you have to ask your wife what you did wrong, you're already in trouble. Yeah, yeah. because You're supposed to know. Yeah, <laughs> you know what yeah. did I do? Well, you ought to know. You if ought to you know me. You'd know this. You yep. know, and and I'm not saying that to be facetious. I'm no, just saying but... lots of times it's like that. Yep. You know, and a lot of times,
1: to... a lot of times when you ask your wife what you did wrong, you know already.
2: You That's just true want to too. draw
1: that out of them.
2: Yeah, what you want them to do is get you off the hook without having to own up.
1: Yeah. Because you know things are going to go bad, so you're trying to keep it from happening. I yeah. have – okay, now, I didn't have anything when we came into this session, but now I got some stuff. Just one, just one more, and we'll okay. get to our friends at the World of Prophecy. That's uh, <clears throat> worldofprophecy.com, everybody. Uh, they're, you're invited to join. They would Definitely. Be, yeah. We're We're there. And they're there, and it's a great place. But anyway, um, I have one more question of my own to ask Councillor Mark. And uh, when I was uh, when I was thirty nine in two thousand one, uh, my mom, I was well, I was uh, I was driving my forklift, and you know how people say the Lord told me this and the Lord spoke to me that. Yeah. I I'm not one of those people who hears from God, you know. And uh, some of that I think is really the Lord speaking to people, and uh, some of it is them, you know, them speaking to themselves in their own mind. But uh, I, the Lord, really actually spoke to me this time, and I know it because it was proven. I was driving my forklift and I was pulling a bale down from about 15 feet up. I was lowering it, and I almost heard it like an audible voice. And uh, God said, "You need to go see your mama." And uh, I I, I, I was – my boss was about 10 feet away from me, and I'm pulling this bail down, backing up on my forklift, and I said, why? And my boss said, why what? I said, nothing, nothing. And then God told me, your mom has brain cancer. And then uh, my boss was still there, and I yelled out, brain cancer? And my boss says, what are you talking about? Are you all right? Wow. <laughs> Never forget it. You're
2: hearing from God because it's like so out of place. Oh, that, that you're like practically embarrassing yourself in public.
1: Oh, my boss thought I was crazy. thought I was losing it. So, um, I go up to see mom and, or no, or no, I didn't No, my, that night I went home and my sister called me and she said, I need to tell you about something serious. I said, what? My little sister, Lori, I love her. Oh man. We are so close. But Lori said, um, Mom, it's mom. And I said, she's got brain cancer. And she's like, how did you know that? I said, the God told me. And uh, she said, yeah, we got to go. We got to go see her. She's in the hospital. And she did. She had four, no, seven golf ball-sized tumors in her brain. And within a couple months, she had them all over. Kidneys, liver, you know, lungs, everywhere. And uh, she really had it bad. I mean, it just... And anyway, they gave her 4 months from the day that God told me that. The doctor said about 4 months, and it was 4 months to the day when mom died. <clears throat> and uh let me gargle a little bit. Now, you know, counselor Mark, I know, man, you had a mean mama, but mine was the mine was the polar opposite. She was the kindest, most wonderful mom. I you know, I mean, I know people think they got the world's greatest mom, but I'm telling you, I got, I had the world's greatest mom. And uh, from the time I was a little boy until I was a teenager, a wild teenager, my favorite thing, my favorite thing to do was uh, to go and sit with my mom. Sometimes I'd just tell my friends, you know, their big party. I'd say, nah, I'm going to hang out with mom. And mom was a famous woodcarver. She has wood carvings in the White House. And, uh, wow. yeah, she's a famous artist and, uh, she had, you know, a shop in the basement where she carved all day, all night long. And I would sit there and drink coffee with her for hours and we would talk about everything. She was my best friend and she was my advocate because I, you know, uh, when I was a teenager, I was really handsome and I had beautiful hair and I had like 30 girlfriends and, uh, but I'm a little weird looking when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I was really good looking in a really ugly way. And so, <laughs> and not only that, but I was, I was weird. I was eccentric as hell. And, uh, mom understood me. She was the only person that understood me. She was my advocate. And, uh, when mom died, when mom died, uh, for one thing, um, um, I almost I had uh I think I had post traumatic shock from it because um I was the only one that had the guts to sit there with my mom in her final 6 hours and uh my wanted to kill her my dad wanted to kill her my brother wanted to kill her my twin brother Tommy who's a famous doctor he called us up and said it's okay to um Give her all the morphine now because it's just, you know, it's understood inside the family, inside families. You're not going to get in trouble. You just uh, tip her head back, dump the bottle in, and rub her throat like a dog to make sure it goes down. And so my dad and me and and, and my little brother were outside and we, we all decided we were going to go kill her. Because my mom was gasping and yelling and screaming. And her lungs were filling up slowly. And uh, it was the most horrible, horrible, torturous death that I think just about anybody can go through. It was brutal. And so when my sister stuck her head out the window and heard our plans, and she dumped mom's morphine down the drain. So my mom, she died in full Brutal pain, no morphine, no nothing. And she, I sat with her for the final two hours when nobody was there but me. I had, it was like going into war. And my hand hurt for weeks because of her squeezing it so hard. And uh, <clears throat> when my mom had died, I crawled into a hole. I mean, I came home and I just, I went into my bedroom. I stayed there. Till I had to go to work, I came back home, went into my bedroom, went to bed, and I crawled in a hole for about three months. I had plenty of money, but my credit completely was destroyed because no bills were paid. All collections everywhere. I was totally in a- disabled. I was disabled by mom's death. Can you speak to that? you know, why was I disabled? What, what was that? And how can we ch- keep from being disabled and, you know, losing our, you know, losing, you know, ruining our credit and even losing? I almost lost my job because I'd just be there just crying. And uh, luckily, the big, big bosses were my friends. And uh, one of my big bosses was my, one of my snowboarding, snowboarding partners, buddies. And so if it wasn't for that, I would have been fired. If I didn't have friends in high places, that would have been it. So could you tell me how, you know, why I was disabled and maybe how we can keep from that happening?
2: I think you could probably look at people who have been in uh, combat war zones and they've lost their friends and they've been there when they've seen just the horrible, uh, the horribleness of death, how it isn't like the movies, you know. I was there uh, days before my mother died and she had a uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and, and her lungs were filling up and she would just sound like a rattlesnake when she was breathing. And uh, it, it was horrible. And I sat there in the dark with her and, and I just had my hand on her foot, you know, and, uh, and you think, I think back about it too. And, uh, when you're that integrated with somebody, mm-hmm. they're like a gear in the clock You know, they're a part of your life. They're in there completely. And when that gear breaks, the clock stops turning. And if you don't have somebody who can step in and help you keep things moving, who can substitute kind of for that that thing, then you are going to stop. And the biggest problem, this is one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about as we were getting ready to do these sessions, was... The biggest problem most people face when it comes to loss, whether it's breakups, relationships, death especially, is that for us, us people that are going through it, everything stops. Everything stops because we've hit a a point in our lives where it can't go forward.
1: That brings us right to the world of prophecy, worldofprophecy.com. And this guy I really look up to, caretaker Drew Montgomery. He is like, he is, his theology is impeccable, and I've turned to him with deep questions. I really look up to this man because he, not only is he a great man, a great Christian, but he looks like, uh, he looks like Father Hazlett, who used to help me when I was a little kid. So I got really deep affection for uh, Caretaker. And, and right along with what you were saying comes Caretaker's first question. Uh, In the death of a loved one, what are the different stages of grief? And are they different uh, besides being more intense and protracted uh, for the death of a spouse?
2: I think the depth of the grief, the effect of the grief, the way that it uh, hits the person's life, the impact, I guess you could say, the crater it leaves behind, uh, really does have to do with how much that person was intermeshed into your life. Um, oh, yeah. With you, your, your mom was so integral to the operation of your daily life. And she was so important. And she was the provider of uh, affirmation and, and all those different aspects of love. And when that is taken from you in a horrible way, then you lose a sense of yourself. You lose a piece of yourself. And like I was saying, everything stops. But the problem is is that the world doesn't stop. You know, Yeah, it,
1: it's, you know you want the world to stop, don't you?
2: Exactly. You want the world to stop, you need to stop, you need to deal with it. You need to try to wrap your head around it. You you have to do something to comprehend it. But the problem is is that everybody else keeps moving. So the world keeps turning, people want to get paid you know, the bills are there, all the different things that your job is there. And and yet you've had this extremely traumatic event occur. I think.
1: Oh, wait, I'm interrupting you there. I wanted the world to stop. That's why I went into my bedroom and hid for three months while everything went to pieces. Exactly. Oh, man. Wow. Oh, man. I just learned something really deep from you. Oh man, I wanted the world to stop. So I made it stop for me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Why do we want the world to
2: stop? Why? Because we can't imagine life without that person. And because our construction of our world, think about it. If you've got a house that you just love and you get up one morning and and go to the bathroom and you walk out of the bathroom and the bedroom you were just in is gone. And you don't have anywhere to live. Right. And so emotionally what happens is, is this place where you've invested your whole heart, you've, you've invested so much of your love and your life and everything is suddenly taken away from you. You don't know what to do. Oh, you've lost
1: your place in the world.
2: Yeah, you've lost the place where your love lives. You've lost the place where your life is anchored. You've lost the place where uh, things make sense.
1: It's like being suddenly homeless and being out in the snow.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Wow.
2: And the easiest thing to do in those moments is to be numb or to try to get numb. And, and there's a lot of different ways to do that. Some people do it by just being overtly emotional and just sob and cry all the time and close their ears to any comfort some people just get catatonic they go into the room they turn the light off and they stay there and they continue to stay there and finally maybe will emerge but again it really goes to that place where we feel grief and loss which is a completely unnatural thing it is not supposed to be part of the created order it's not supposed to be like this and so when it occurs It's wrong. And so then our reaction to it, of course, is going to be wrong because it's utterly unnatural.
1: We should react to it badly because we're not designed to die. We're not designed to deal with death.
2: No, our relationships weren't built to end like that.
1: Because of Adam. He was supposed to live forever.
2: Yep. Wow. So we
1: are hurt because we think something's wrong. And guess what? It is wrong.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the hugest indications of the fallen state of the world is that somebody that we have poured ourselves into uh, – for instance, I, I'll give you this. Now, um, I have a disclaimer to give about grief when it comes to uh, the death of parents and, and close people is that I have not processed it normally like most people do. Uh I'm just weird. I haven't been. Gosh, I haven't been devastated. Uh, I it's 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 really hard to explain. So I, I want people to understand. I do know what it's like to lose people that are just really near and dear to you, or ought to be. But I have a real odd kind of point of view on it for me personally, I know my heart, what my reactions are and, and, and whatnot. And so, uh, when I lost my mom and I lost my father suddenly, you know, uh, I just didn't mourn. Like I, I immediately went into caretaker mode and so I was trying to take care of everybody else. And so that, I guess that was my way of dealing with it, it was like, okay, how am I going to help everybody get through this crisis? And the reason why was because I grew up in such an abusive home and I was the one who was always level headed enough to try to figure out how am I going to get me and my brothers through this crisis? And it was every day was another crisis and it was, how do I do this? How do I do this? And so I had gotten into this survival mode where you could be throwing bricks at me and I was just going to go on. You know, I'm not just, I've got this really weird survival mode kick in thing and, uh but most people, they they just hit a wall. I mean, it's so hard to take unless they've been given a lot of time and a lot of help to deal with that change that's coming. You know, I'm, I knew my mom was going to die about a year and a half before it happened. And the Sunday morning I got up, I, I was with her on a Thursday. I live in Nashville. She was out in Phoenix. And uh, I was with her on that Thursday, flew back to Nashville. And that Sunday morning I got up and I just had the feeling that that sunday was going to be the day and of course you know her husband had been calling me saying well she's in this condition and this is what's going on so it wasn't like it was some you know big revelation but somehow i just had that feeling and sure enough sunday that day at you know what would have been i guess nine nine in the morning or so in phoenix she she died and uh and I, I really cried when I got the phone call and then that was kind of it. And uh, and one of the reasons why – and I think this speaks truth to your situation. One of the reasons why the impact was not as debilitating as it was for you was because I had not invested so much of my daily life into her. She was not there. She was not a part of my world. Uh, I didn't. We purposely chose to not live near her, um, because it was she was not good. All the way up till she died, she was just mentally ill and mean. And she was mean when I went to visit her when she was dying. And uh, just it's it's hard to describe. I mean, just the way she talked and everything. I mean, it was just mean. And so I was even tolerating that being with her in the hospital, you know, while she was gone and but I do know that the amount of emotional investment that we have in somebody when they do pass or when that relationship is lost, divorce and things like that, it is terribly debilitating. And uh, what we do is is we we try to deal with it in the only way we can But all of it is very unnatural. Death is very, very unnatural. These are relationships that we were designed for to have go off and on into eternity. And all of a sudden now, without the relationship and the emotional support, we've had this piece of us yanked out. We're also then faced with the unknown of death. What really happens? You know, we've got the scripture and it tells us very clearly what occurs, but that is not always like a concrete block. You know, all of a sudden all of our doubts about death and life after death, and will we get to see this person again? And will I ever be whole again? All these things emerge. And uh and I've always said uh that grief is really the thing that kills relationships with God more more than anything I've ever seen. And so that's what happens is you lose that peace and you hole up And you want the world to stop and you just want to be able to get over it and it's going to take whatever amount of time it's going to take. And you have to deal with all of the trauma of it, especially like in a situation like yours when you are there and you're watching this horrible thing happen and and somebody doesn't go out in the peace in their sleep, you know, and it's not a beautiful thing or whatever or something that we can handle. You know, they found found my dad four days after he killed himself in his truck. And he'd been sitting in the Florida sun in this truck. Oh, dude! And, oh, man! And uh, oh, that's and, and bad. he killed him. He killed himself by tying a plastic bag over his head. He took a bunch of sleeping pills, tied a bag over his head, and then just was in his pickup truck. It's sitting in a grocery store parking lot out towards you know where people didn't normally park. And uh so they found him four days later in that trial. Four days later four days four days in that trial. Tra- four, four days later days in that trial. Hey, your
1: boy Johnny here. We're going to shut her down right here. Please come back and listen to Iron Show 36, the second part of our human emotions series where we are focusing in on grief and sadness. See you next time.